This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to another special episode of the Stacking Benjamin Show, year-end 2020 edition. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me, my good friend OG. Happy holiday week, man. Okay. I mean, I'm all for like giving some to the people, but um, is there a break coming sometime soon? (laughs) We have two more of these to do today and tomorrow. And what you got to sit here for 10 minutes while we do this. Okay. Well, you're... I got to tell you, though, you're going to love today's episode. We're going all the way back again to 2013. So for those of you who are... Those are my favorite episodes, the ones that I absolutely have no memory of. (laughs) I think you'll remember this one because we go back to 2013 here. And uh, this is an episode of the show that um, we actually found this person watching uh, CBS Sunday Morning. And I saw this interview and said, I wonder if he'll talk to us. And imagine my surprise when he said, yes, I'll talk. Imagine our surprise when anybody will talk to us. Let's be real. For those of you new to this, we are counting down 2020's quirkiest episode to keep it PG-13. We call them quirky. Uh, Well, these episodes are quirky, but we'll call the year quirky. Ken Periani, though, back in 2013, wrote a book called Caveat Emptor, and he describes how he went from this schoolboy with no money to becoming, wait for it, a world-class forgery expert. And the FBI was on his trail. He was sure he was going to get caught uh, much of the time. We also had a woman on the show who called herself the making sense babe back in the day. Uh, she's going to talk about side gigs. We might get in a little bit into rules at the time. Remember, this is 2013. We try to take as many of the old 2013 rules out that don't apply anymore, but we might have missed one. So just like Ken Periani's book, OG, is called Caveat Emptor. Same thing, right? <laughs> yes, same, same exact thing. All right, here we go. Number two on our top seven most quirky guest on the Stacking Benjamin Show, The Life of an Art Forger, back from October 22nd, 2013. Ma'am, I'm sorry to have to tell you, your son is fudging checks. Fudging checks? Wait, I'm sure we can take care of that. I'm working part-time at the church now. Just tell me how much yours and I'll pay you back. So far, it's about $1.3 million. My parents' basement. This is 
episode 26 of the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe Saul Cihai, Average Show on our blog. And with my partner in crime, the other guy, we operate this super secret podcast about earning, saving, and spending with a plan. You'll find notes for the show at stackingbenjamins.com. And you can send all your emails with questions, comments, or your feelings about artwork to joe at stackingbenjamins.com. And here he is, the world's best thief. I don't know. OG. Wow. Have you seen the previews for that new movie, American Hustle? Yes. Doesn't that look good? That looks awesome, doesn't it? And it's, you know, it looks like they're hustling artwork, doesn't it, a little bit? Yeah, Cheryl doesn't think that it looks that it looks great but but i i think hey man that 70s look that it's got it's awesome that's gonna be great well i think it's based a little bit on true story yeah well we've got the true story for everybody today which is very cool i can't wait to get to that and that's why we actually played the catch me if you can clip at, right. the, at the beginning uh we cut your son fortune checks uh oh that's fine how much was it? about one half million dollars <laughs> Whoops. Uh, hey, before we get too far, so we can hopefully accumulate one half million dollars, actually about one half million pesos, one half million yen. If while you're doing your holiday shopping, you go to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Amazon. Guess where you end up, OG, if you do that? Uh, I'm going to say Amazon. Bam! Right again. It's the same exact Amazon. And guess what you do? You actually help out this show. And you can hear OG on his brand flipping new microphone. So you sound ultra sexy, ultra sexy today. I need one of those like things that like the uh, musicians have that go wow, 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 like the you know when they talk into the little thingy or make the guitar make the weird noise. Yeah, wow. Hey, on today's show, Ken Perenni, author of the book Caveat Emptor, is with us, and you know what he did? He made a bunch of money pretending his artwork had actually been created by some of the world's greatest masters. What do you intended? Yeah, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that if if somebody gets a piece of artwork and they think it's real and it's real enough to them and it looks real on their wall, do you think that it's a victimless crime? Very interesting. Um, I have never been one to look at artwork and go, I could pay a million dollars for that. That doesn't seem like anything to me. I have, however, for the first time ever, seen stuff that really left me, you know, speechless when I was in an art gallery in uh, South Florida. Literally speechless. I couldn't move. It was just breathtaking. So I guess, I guess, uh, and at that moment, I thought, I will pay whatever it takes to get this in my house because it's amazing. So I guess at the end of the day, if you're happy with it and, you know, and it leaves you breathless, then what the heck's it matter? What value price is nothing more than just what somebody's willing to pay for an exchange of goods and services. I guess where yeah, the receipt comes in is whether or not. Uh, but if you, you thought, think it's something that it's not. Yeah, but if you think you're getting one thing, you're thinking right. one person did it, and somebody else who's very very good at copying actually did it. You know, and by the way, speaking of that art that left you breathless, it's the original Thomas Crown affair. Yeah, right. That, that that artwork though that left you breathless in uh, Miami. I didn't know that the Velvet Elvis had that effect on you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move. That's not where I was. <laughs> 
I got an article here today, OG, from the Investment News called Turning Advice on Its Head. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's by an author, uh, Dan Jameson. And he's talking about this guy, Joe Duran, who is a top executive at a company called United Capital out of Newport Beach, California. Mm -hmm. United Capital is one of these firms that is taking small boutique financial advisor firms and they're scooping them up. And all these financial advisory firms are working independently, supposedly, but on the back end, really, they're getting this economy of scale that supposedly United Capital brings. Well, the big reason I wanted to bring it up today has nothing to do with that. It actually has to do with the fact that they're trying to bring a more relaxed atmosphere to financial planning. And what Mr. Duran talks about in this article is how he's hoping that people respond better to an advisor who has an open shirt, a more relaxed feel than that button-down suit-and-tie look that advisors have. Like an open shirt with, like, you know, tons chest of hair chest hanging out, right. like, like a big V-neck <laughs> 70s party like we were talking earlier, like Yo, that kind baby. of open shirt. Yeah, right. A polo shirt. So what do, you, what do you think about going into meetings with clients and having that look? Do you think people expect a banker look when they come in? Do you think that affects the relationship? I don't know. I'll tell you, from in my own practice, we have gotten very lax on dress code. So much so that on occasion, I've been known to wear jeans in the office. When clients now, are there? Uh, it happens. We wear a lot of golf clothes, you know, like golf pants and a polo shirt or something like that, as evidenced by my frequency at golfing. So that's a little bit, that's more like, it's not even business casual per se. It's, you know, I guess they would call that country club casual, perhaps. And anecdotally, in my practice, when I wear a shirt and tie, or God forbid, an actual suit coat, and clients come in, they say, now they say, why are you so dressed up? So they're suspicious of it. Yeah. What's going on? Why are you so dressed up? Am I in trouble? I think that the pendulum has swung too far that direction. And I've actually made it known to our team that, you know, starting the first of the year, we're going to we're going to start having a little bit more formal kind of dress code requirements, more predictability. And uh, and I will probably go back to wearing a shirt and tie. But I think that it's less to do about the the clients and how they feel and more about the advisor and how he or she feels. It seems to me that when I wear jeans and a T-shirt to the office, I kind of feel more floating around, and I'm just kind of there going through the motions. But if I show up in a, you know, a suit. You mean business. I mean business today. We're going to get work done. So. You know, when I was practicing, I found that clients of a certain net worth expected me to wear a tie. Especially, though, in my practice, because of the whole television thing, they saw me on a, in a suit and tie on TV, and then they expected the same look when they came to the office. Uh, I'll say right. this. I tried to change that OG when I went to the TV station one time without a tie. I was talking about a very blue-collar topic, and so I thought, hey, I'll go in with a polo shirt. And the producer pulled me over and said, uh, our viewers expect you in a suit and tie. You're the finance guy. You need to be in a suit and tie. And I said, right. well, I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to make it relaxed and where we relate. And the guy said, oh, I think we'll relate better to you in a suit and tie. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's something to do with that. I don't know. I uh, found for younger, it, it, younger clients were more um, suspicious of the suit and tie. People starting out, people that maybe had a high income but not a lot of net worth yet, where my 50 and 60 and 70-year-old clients that already built their castle and now they were trying to protect it, 
those people weren't were more suspicious if I wore jeans or a polo shirt. Well, and I know that you used to do this too, especially when you do speaking engagements. I do it all the time. So when I'm doing a speaking engagement, I'll wear a, a suit, of course, but to cater to the audience. So we just did a, a client event or a you know prospecting event a couple of nights ago, and it was with uh, very blue collar people. And and you're right, they might feel a little oh that guy's like management, you know management. You know, so what I always do when, when I'm speaking to a group and I know that they're going to be maybe a little more blue collar, or maybe they're guys that work on the line type of thing or something like that, is I'll, I'll start, hi, I'm OG, blah, 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 blah. And I'll say, guys, do you mind? I feel, I feel all stuffy like this. Can I mind if I take my coat off and kind of loosen the tight? It's already six o'clock. And you get their buy in. And yeah, and I'll take the coat off. I'll roll my sleeves up, loosen my tie and button the top button. I'm not the stuffy management representative that they first saw i'm you know a guy that uh that might be so to speak on their level i've done that in meetings with clients before where i'll start with the tie and then i'll realize that maybe it feels a little formal i'm getting a little you know a little formal feel from the clients and i want to relax the meeting so i will i will then say hey do you mind if i take off the jacket and you'll see people you'll see people relax you know, it's interesting because what we're really talking about is not at all, this is nothing to do, OG, with whether you give good advice or not. You know, it's all about dress code and people's perceptions about who they think that their advisor should be. Should people be looking past the way somebody looks or their clues to the way somebody looks, whether they're a good advisor or not? I think that you should look past the way somebody looks. You know, you can dress like a million bucks and still give terrible advice. Well, I'll tell you, sometimes people look too much like a million bucks to me. I've yeah. I've been in meetings with some advisors. Actually, it was a mortgage guy, and he very, very deliberately made sure that I knew he had a Rolex on. Right. And and I was out of there. I'm like, I am not paying for your Rolex. <laughs> I want nothing to do with that. I, I do the same thing. So you got to kind of dress down everything that happens in your life in some respects. I'm, I'm not ashamed about the amount of income that we make as a family. My wife works and I work and we make a nice, we make a nice living. And I'm also not ashamed of the stuff that I have, but I make sure that people understand that, you know, just cause I drive a fancy luxury sedan doesn't mean I spent fancy luxury sedan prices to get it. So I'll tell the story of, yeah, I have a hundred thousand dollar car, but I didn't buy a hundred thousand dollar car. I bought it for 26, five because some other idiot bought it for a hundred thousand and burned all the depreciation out of it. And I got it for, th- you know, I got one at 35,000 miles on it for 26 grand. My car costs less than your Buick. So Ken is upstairs with mom right now. I wonder if he even forged his credentials that mom always likes to look through to make sure that they're okay to come into the basement. I thought he didn't do that anymore. He actually doesn't do that anymore, and he's going to tell that story, but I thought it was a fun joke. Come on. Come on. No, I like that. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, a redo. Take two. Yeah. And boy, t- uh, t- uh, talking to, to Ken, just what an interesting fellow, and his book, Caveat Emptor, is a fantastic book. Um, could you get that on Amazon if you wanted to? You could, and you know what? We'll have a link. We should to- put a link to that on the show notes. That is brilliant, OG. That's great. But before we do that, let's welcome Ken to the basement. What happens when you have a gift, but that gift is copying other people? 
In Las Vegas, people pay hundreds of dollars to see impressionists, right? We teach people to emulate the stars to get famous. What about in the art world? Ken Perenia has a real gift in that area. He's one of the few people in the world who isn't allowed in the major art museums because he was a professional forger. And he's here to share with us his gift that he's detailed in his new book, Caveat Emptor. Well, welcome to the basement, Ken. Glad you can join us. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, now, here in Mom's Basement, we don't have any real art unless you can reproduce dogs playing poker. Would that sell well? <laughs> I don't know if there's a big market for that these days. That Mom's going to be very disappointed by that. <laughs> so when did you realize that this gift of yours of reproduction was so good that you could pass it off as the real thing? Well, uh, when I sold my first fake, I was um, 17 going on 18, and I needed money to uh, fix up an old car that I was driving around. And I uh, had already uh, tried my hand at painting. I discovered that I had a proclivity to imitate the uh, style of the old masters. And when a friend of mine, an artist and a mentor, gave me a book on the subject of forgery, I followed its instructions, very carefully created my first fake, uh, a, a Flemish portrait, uh, only around maybe 10 by 12 inches in size, aged it and cracked it according to methods I read in the book and managed to sell it to a gallery on 57th Street in New York City and, and uh, walked out with $800. And uh, <laughs> that was the beginning of it. Did you walk out that day with 800 bucks, or did they have to call in some other experts to verify it? No, I, w I was in and out in the space of two hours, but it seemed like an eternity for me. I uh, wasn't sure what they were doing with the painting. They took it into another room. They were examining it, and uh, I heard bottles being rattled around, and I was uh, doing all I can to control my, uh, my fear and emotions at that time. But uh, they did buy it, and I walked out of the gallery with the, with the cash. Is there a type of painting that was easier to reproduce than any other type? Well, I would say, um, for me, it was kind of an evolution. I started uh, painting surrealistic paintings for myself, for my own pleasure, and they, but they had very much of a quality of an old master in technique. So it was easily for it was easy for me to make the transition into art forgery. I would say it's not a matter of any particular type of a painting. It's more understanding a technique, which I mastered, that could be applied to many different schools of period painting. Does, does painting run in your family? Do you, were your parents painters? No, not at all. My father was a factory worker uh, in Jersey City, New Jersey, but he had a great mechanical mind. Many people relied on him in the factory to solve the most complicated problems. <laughs> His fellow workers said he was a genius. And, uh, well, maybe uh, maybe I got a little bit of his brains, uh, but it, it channeled into artwork. But, no, there was, there was really no uh, interest in art in my family. I'm curious what you told your dad then, and maybe even your friends, how you were coming up with this money. <laughs> well, uh, I was painting my own pictures. Uh, as I mentioned, they were uh kind of bizarre surrealistic pictures it was the 60s the hippie uh movement was in full swing so i was trying to um fit in with a lot of new friends i had in the art world and be far out do something <laughs> shocking and bizarre 
So uh, I had a good cover story that I was uh, making a few bucks selling my pictures. <laughs> yeah. After that first one, was it the thrill or is it just the continued need for money? And I mean, did it just become like a nine to five job for you, Ken? There was a continued need for money. Uh, my intention was to move into New York City, which I did, got a little studio for myself, but my intention was to become a legitimate painter. I wanted to become part of the abstract expressionist movement that was um, uh, developing at that time. I had a good idea uh, for a collection of artwork but I, uh, well, I always needed money to pay the rent and to keep myself alive, buy supplies and so on. So instead of taking a day job, as a lot of uh, artists do, I would just simply make another little fake, go out and sell it, raise cash, and go back to my more serious work. But as time went on, my reliance on faking became more uh, absolute until finally it uh, developed into a full-blown career. I think it must have been, it had to have been frustrating. I'm just trying to put myself there that you're, you're, you're doing the forgeries to create time so you can work on what you think of as your art and your art isn't selling, but this stuff that's been around for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years is flying off the shelf. <laughs> well, yes, it was a little, uh, frustrating. I, uh, uh, I really, it wasn't a problem of my artwork not selling. I was in a development stage and I was getting attention from a lot of important people downtown who wanted to see what I could produce. But it seemed like um, events kept conspiring against me and I found myself being evicted and thrown out from one place to another. And I, I, it, it so dis disrupted my, uh, my work that I was never able to fully uh, put the collection together that I envisioned. So I had to keep relying on uh, creating another uh, antique painting to raise money to pay everyday expenses. We're speaking with Ken Perini, author of Caveat Emptor. And so at some point, the FBI got on your trail. How did you first find out that they were hot in pursuit of you, Ken? Well, um, I didn't have any forewarning. They just um, showed up at my house one day and asked to come in. And um, at first I was wondering what they could possibly want with me. Because by this time, this was 1998 when this occurred, I had been um, uh, faking paintings now for over 30 years. And I was quite confident in my abilities to not get caught. So it was um, a bit uh, unpleasant to have the FBI visit me and um, want to start talking to me about paintings that were showing up in um, various venues in New York and London. So uh, I realized at that time that this could be the beginning of the end of my career, which it was. I found myself under a federal investigation that dragged on for five long years. And it was um, difficult to uh, endure that. Right. Uh, and in the meantime, I was pretty much out of business also. Hey, for people who, who invest in collectibles, was there a way 
they would have known that their investment in this thing that they thought they were buying, that they weren't really buying, that they could have found out what it was? I mean, was, was there some clue that people were missing? Yeah, there is a clue if you know where to look for it uh, in the sense that if you want to take your painting and subject it to scientific analysis, it would probably turn up anachronisms. However, you have to have a reason to do that. And if you buy a painting from a reputable gallery or uh, you know one of the major auction houses and you're buying it with a... Um, a statement from them that they believe this painting is to be by the artist that it's represented to be, I think you would have confidence that you had the genuine article and there would be no need to, to subject it to any kind of chemical analysis. As far as um, visually, I felt that my paintings were impeccable and uh, would not in any way bring upon them or draw any suspicion to them at all. I've watched two national interviews with you in which, you know, the interviewers brought in someone who calls you a liar or calls you a cheat. <laughs> what do you think when you hear those terms? Well, I think they're uh, in, uh, entitled to their opinion. Uh, it doesn't bother me in the least. In fact, I, um, I, I even enjoy listening to them. I'm proud of the achievements that I've accomplished. I have nothing to be ashamed of. I feel that there's very few people, if any, in the world that could master the uh, range of artists that I have. And um, I, uh, I'm, not, I'm not bothered by their opinion in the least. There's always going to be people like that, So, but it, it doesn't have any effect on me at all. Have have you had any of the any museums or any art collectors ask you or hire you as a consultant to help them find other people that might be forging? Uh, no, I uh, have not uh, been uh, approached in that capacity. But I have had museums and and uh, major institutions. Um, approach me for vetting of paintings and so on, uh, but not uh, not as far as uh, tracking down other forges. I really wouldn't even know where to begin doing that. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest part to me uh, of your story is that now that, that you're even more well-known than you were before in your book, Caveat Emptor, is on every bookstore and uh, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and everywhere else. <laughs> now you're in higher demand than ever for your reproductions. Is, is is there a waiting list? Uh, yes, in some cases, uh, I'm pretty uh, booked up uh, on a de for demands on, especially James E. Buttersworth. That's uh, a very uh, sought after uh, marine painter of the 19th century who I mastered. Uh, yeah, in in uh, in a strange way, I'm actually um, probably better off now uh, and have more opportunity now than I did in the old days. The only problem is I'm missing the uh, intoxicating thrill of taking a <laughs> risk and getting away with something. So uh, I have to uh, I have to take what I can get and be happy. Yeah, where do you get that fix now, Ken? Uh, it's hard to replace it. <laughs> Life is pretty dull without it. Well, for someone who's new to the art world, where would you tell that person to start if they're really ready to, you know, maybe begin their own collection? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, you can uh, begin by educating yourself, read all about the artists that you're interested in investing in, 
do a lot of research and um, understand the market for that artist. Uh, understand what he what his uh, values are for a good painting and what he brings for a poor painting. A lot of people buy a poor painting by a great artist and think they have something. Uh, so you really have to know the range and, and how the market affect on the different periods of the artist. And then you have a choice. You could either buy at the auction houses where you'll probably get your best price but there's also an element of risk there. You really have to know what you're buying at the auction house. You have to be your own expert. However, you could go to the high-end galleries in New York and London and purchase retail, but you're gonna pay more. But then you have, you have the guarantee of a, hopefully a big name gallery, uh, you know, a reputable dealer so that if, um, if you find out you have a painting that isn't what it's supposed to be, you could owe, you have an easy recourse to, uh, you know, for a, a refund. But um, you're always better off at the auction house, but you have to understand what you're buying. Hey there, Trivia Mavens. It's Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, here with the highlight of your show. So I just got a look at that forgery dude Ken's signature on the guest book down here in the basement. And I immediately realized I'd seen that handwriting before. It's on all the royalty checks that Joe's been giving me. No wonder those things are bouncing like a three-year-old hopped up on Red Bull. Okay, here's some fascinating money trivia for your pre-Halloween festivities. In financial terms, what is known as a zombie? I'll be back later with the answer. But I think that making sense, babe, Feminine is wiles to steal the microphone from me. That woman is amazing. Because all the people who like to confuse the crap out of you were busy. Here's making sense, babe. This is a little bit of a rant, so just giddy up, folks, and get ready. How many times have you guys been asked this question? What are you doing with your website? What's the point of it? Why do you spend so much time on it if you don't get paid for what you're doing? Okay, let me start by saying that all of you who have asked those questions definitely do not have a side project. You have no goals or endeavors outside of your typical nine to five job. I know this because if you did have a side project you were working on, you would not ask those ask to nine questions. This is you, get a drink. You go to work, you come home, you stalk people on Instagram or Facebook, and then you meet your friend for a drink who cannot meet for dinner because she's working on her side project. While having a drink, you ask her all sorts of stupid questions about what she's doing with her side project. Like, what's the point of it if you're not getting paid? All right, let's be honest. What's really going on is you don't have a side project you're working on, so you look for reasons why someone would work so hard at something if they're not getting paid. Reasons that you'll inevitably shoot down to further justify your laziness. That is you and we know who you are. You're not happy with what you're doing in your life. You probably hate your job and you're not doing anything about it. So it's just really hard for you to get excited for people who are actually making changes in their lives. And that brings me to my next two points. You do not have a side project because number one, you're lazy. And number two, you're afraid of failing. Yes, you're too lazy to carry your laptop everywhere you go. You're too lazy to come home from work and start working on your side project because you've been working all day at a job you probably hate. And yes, in case you didn't get what I'm saying, you're too lazy to work on something when you're not entirely sure what the payout is. 
And this last point is the biggest difference between you and those of us who strive for more. Here's the thing, people who are successful with side projects do not initially worry about the end payout or how much money they're gonna get paid. We know that the whole thing is a freaking adventure and the path to the end goal, whatever it is, is definitely not a straight line. There are offshoots that happen each day that get us excited to keep on working. And I'll tell you this, unlike you, we're sure not worried about failing. There's a big difference between people who believe their intelligence can grow and people who believe their intelligence is fixed. Now, studies show that people who believe their intelligence can grow learn from their mistakes. And guess what? They do in fact learn and make adjustments and small tweaks and get better and better and better. People who have side projects fail every single day. Oh my God, that post I just gave to someone sucked. Oh my God, that podcast I just gave to Stacking Benjamins was the worst. We fail every single day, but our brains work differently than yours. We're not afraid of failing. So here's the thing, there's really no way to fail with a side project unless you keep making the same mistake over and over. But the thing is, is we use these things that seem like failures as springboards to make us smarter and smarter. All right, so let's settle this side project mumbo jumbo once and for all. The reason you have a side project is to get going in the general direction of where you want to go. Maybe you just wanna get exposure to a certain area that you wanna learn about. Your motivation to work on the side project is not necessarily to get paid along the way. The payout is when you see something happening as a result of your side project that you could get paid for. Maybe it's not exactly what you thought you were starting with your side project. Maybe it's some sort of offshoot. Okay, so in case you've had this entire thing on mute, this time. The takeaway is for all of you who don't have a side project and keep asking your friends why they're working on something and not reaping immediate monetary benefits. I hope you now see that you are the foolish one. You are going to, you know what, in the bed one day when you see that working on something you actually enjoy does pay off in bigger ways that you could ever imagine. Has your pet helped you get through the pandemic this year? You know, I'd like to say that Mr. Cooper sitting here with me as we record today got mom and Cheryl and I through the year, but nope, as Cheryl and I were doing the nomadic thing, living all over the place in the worst year, by the way, to live all over the place, Cooper kept my mother-in-law company, which was kind of funny because she says that she's not a cat person. And yet now... Now that Cooper's got, first of all, she didn't want to see Cooper leave when we went to pick him up. And then number two, I would say that I thought she was going to start crying, but she really did start crying, which was incredibly awkward. I mean, Mr. Cooper is a badass, but I really felt bad for my mother-in-law because in a year like this year, when so many people, especially seniors, don't have a lot of people to talk to, having Cooper there with her, I think was fantastic. So the same way Cooper's essential to my mother-in-law, who doesn't ask when she calls about Cheryl or I or about her grandkids. She just asks about Cooper. All she asks about. Much much like Cooper's been essential, PetSmart's been an essential retailer, making sure you can get everything your pet needs right when you need it. Over 1,600 convenient locations, and they lead the pack with safe and easy ways to shop. Of course, you already know that PetSmart's associates really love pets. And caring for them is a big part of why they work there. And as an essential retailer since the beginning of the pandemic, PetSmart's made it safe and easy for you to care for your pet online or in stores. How about this? PetSmart right now is offering free same-day delivery, part by DoorDash, 
through January 31st, 2021. So you can get everything your pet needs. This is through January 31st of 2021. Right at your door, right when you need it. At PetSmart, the health and safety of employees, pet parents, and pets are what's most important, which is why they require face coverings, support social distancing, and enhanced cleaning to follow CDC recommendations. Or if you're interested in curb <laughs> contactless shopping, almost said curbside pickup. That's coming, by the way. We're going to talk about curbside pickup. But if you're interested in contactless shopping, just order online at PetSmart.com or on the PetSmart app and enjoy easy curbside pickup or free same-day delivery powered by DoorDash through January 31st, 2021. So you can get everything your pet needs right to your door and right when you need it. Check out PetSmart.com for more details. That's right, Mr. Coop. He just got up, rubbed against my leg. Check out PetSmart.com for more details. He's like, hey, Dad, why don't you go check out uh, some of those cat toys for me? Right, dude? Yo, trivia fans, get this. That making sense babe actually just told me that I've got the best mullet she's ever seen. Ever. That girl's hotter than a $10 pistol, and she's got her eyes on me. Smart girl. Okay, where was I? Trivia. Here's that question again, folks. In financial terms, what's known as a zombie? Well, here you go. A zombie is a company that continues to operate even though they're bankrupt. That's a funny name, huh? They also call those companies The Walking Dead. Speaking of Walking Dead, let's get back to Joe and OG. I got a great idea, OG. What's that? Let's give something away. This month, we're giving away Jane Blaufus's book. She is the woman who was on the podcast last month talking about uh, the situation with her husband who passed away in a, a car accident in when she was in her 30s. And she wrote that great book, OG, called Claim Your Life with a Stroke of a Pen. Fantastic book about getting your insurances. That's something people don't like to talk about. People can't stand talking about insurances, OG. I love talking about insurance because it makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> and that's what you're all about. I'm all about, it's like we were talking about before with the clothes and everything. I, I come in wearing sweatpants. I haven't shaved in a week and a half or taken a shower in three days. And I'm like, no, no, no trust me, you're rollover safe here. I got this. Anyway, that's a train wreck discussion. Sorry. Uh, back to what we were talking about. We're giving away Jay Bluffus's book. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah, we're giving yes. it away. All right, cool. And here's how you win it. Three ways to win it. And I got to say, last month, only eight people entered. And we usually get hundreds of people entering. So apparently a lot of people didn't want Jeff Rose's book. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't I don't know. Or they thought, heck, uh, I don't have a chance to win. Well, you have a great chance to win. Here's what you got to do. One of three things. First of all, if you go to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash October, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash October, we'll give you the three ways. You just click the buttons as you've done them. You tweet about the show. Number two is you like us on Facebook. That's Facebook forward slash I stack Benjamins. And then the third way is just the easiest one. Go back and listen to the shows last month, OG, and tell us who this voice is. Write that down. And ladies can also reverse engineer the situation. How? Smile. A study shows that when average looking girls smile when they're sitting at the bar, she had five times as many guys approach her as when she's not smiling. And that woman appeared on a show in September 
Who do you think that was, OG? Oh, that is definitely Carrie Underwood. Oh, you are so, so, so far away. It is not Carrie Underwood. OG doesn't have it, but he narrowed the field for you. It's somebody other than Carrie Underwood who appeared on the show in September. All you do is go to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash October, and maybe you'll be one of two people to go into the cage match at the beginning of November, the coin flip of death, and to win Jane's book. Hey, stackers, one more thing before we say goodbye. If you're an active duty service member, veteran, DOD civilian, military family member, you can join Navy Federal. That means if you've served in any branch of the military, like OG or my dad, you can join Navy Federal Credit Union. On average, Navy Federal members earn and save, listen to this, 3611 more per year. You could pay no fees, get low rates and rate discounts, plus earn cash back and grow your savings. Have a large credit card balance after the holidays? Let Navy Federal Credit Union help you rebalance your priorities. Make a plan to do away with high-interest credit card debt by transferring your balance to a Navy Federal credit card. With a low intro APR and no balance transfer fees, you can pick the right card to help you take back control. Visit NavyFederal.org. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, dollar value of Navy Federal's 2019 member give back study, 25.9-9 to 18% variable APRs based on product type and credit worthiness up to $1 cash advance transaction fee at non-Navy Federal ATMs. Short show this week, OG. Oh, my God. I mean, oh, too bad. Oh, darn. Son uh, of a gun. Well, I, you're uh, headed out of town. Yeah, I'm not going to have time to edit this uh, as this comes out. I will be just returning home from the Financial Blogger Conference. Cool. In the next couple weeks, we're going to have a lot of footage from that like we did last year. If you go back to the old Two Guys in Your Money shows from this time last year, we had a ton of great interviews. Nice. And I really wanted to come to this, but to protect my identity... I'm just not allowed. You would have had to wear a bag over your head the whole time. Well, I have to do that anyway when I go out. But I was thinking more of like one of those like masquerade masks. Have you seen, speaking of masquerade masks, <laughs> have you seen that uh, most interesting man commercial about the masquerade masks? No. It's the, like a little PG-13. You know what I'm talking about, right? The Dosakis guy? The Dos guy, yeah. So it pans to him and then the, the subtext says, on masquerade parties, like dot, dot, dot. And it pans up to him, and there's you know he's sitting there with two women that got their masks on, and he says, "If the only thing that comes off at the unmasking hour are the masks, you've done something wrong." <laughs> <laughs> Stay thirsty, my friends. Stay thirsty. Yeah, well, this I love cl I love clever marketing <laughs> stuff, man. It just really, it really is cool when you find a company that's kind of nailing it, you know. Yeah, well, that's why, well, like I talked about in the short stack on Friday, I love that MasterCard commercial. Right, yeah, the, the, the pirate ones. The, the pirate one, yeah, getting, the pirate out, one, I mean. getting out of there in the nick of time. Yeah, and you've got young kids, you know all about that. Oh, yeah. I had a situation like that with my daughter. She is, well, you know what? I might tell that story a different time, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no problem. Let's Maybe. do it another time, then. Yeah, let's do it another time. 
time. <clears throat> maybe, maybe late. Maybe later. Maybe. Maybe later. Maybe. But for now, we've got the, these are the juiciest two movies you and I have reviewed in a week in a long time. For those of you new to the podcast, at this point in the show, we no longer talk about financial planning. OG and I both love to go see movies or to watch movies at home, watch TV series. So we try to give you a little We're bit. We're generally more. quite slothy when it comes to life in general. We like to sit in one place and, eat and be entertained. Right. <laughs> Entertain me. Bring me the biggest tub of popcorn you can. We, we uh, Cherry Coke. This week we saw two movies. We'll start with yours first. This was a new Tom Hanks movie called Captain Phillips. This is Mask Alabama. We are an unarmed freighter. We have a potential piracy situation. Copy, Alabama. You should alert your crew. Get your fire hoses ready. Chances are it's just fishermen. They're not here to fish. Listen up. We have been boarded by armed pirates. Stay hidden at all costs. Don't want any hostages. We will follow the procedures to lock down, go dead in the water, and wait for help. Stick together. It will be all right. Where is the crew? I don't know. You think you're playing? You think we're playing? If you're going to shoot somebody, shoot me. Look at me. Sure. Look at me. I'm the captain now. One minute, I kill all your friends. One minute. So Captain Phillips is a movie that's based, from what I gather, pretty close to a true story. Everybody has heard this story about the Somali pirates who capture the uh, Mersk, Alabama. Captain Phillips is the captain. The movie portrays how he got off the boat and and so on and so forth. I don't know how accurate that was. It starts with Tom Hanks being a cautious captain. He's concerned about... um, uh, his shipping route. He's concerned about pirates and all the stuff that's going on now. Of course, the U.S. Navy now has a very strong presence in that area. I haven't heard anything about piracy off the Horn of Africa in a, in a couple of years. Year. Yeah, right. And I think this is what kind of started that impetus for us to sort of get involved, I guess, to some degree. It's basically Castaway with words and pirates. So if you saw Castaway, imagine that he was having conversations with pirates Instead of, uh, instead of himself or the volleyball, Mr. Wilson. And you've got Captain Phillips. The hardest part about this movie, it was two and a half hours long. The hardest part is there's no change of scenery. He's on a boat or in a boat the entire time, except for the time that he's flying to the boat, which is the very intro of the movie. It's all about the boat. And then he ends the movie on a boat on the Navy ship. There is absolutely no ability to build suspense in this movie because... If you know anything, and I can't say that I'm spoiling this by any stretch of the imagination, (laughs) right? He lives at the end. More specifically, he lives because three Navy SEAL snipers shoot the bad guys in the face at the same time, which is a feat remarkable in and of itself. If you know anything about competitive shooting or anything like that, three people shooting three separate things, moving from the deck of one ship to another ship. Bouncing in in the the water. Yeah, in the water, in the dead of night, having this happen is just a miraculous feat in and of itself. That's That should be the headline of this movie, how these guys are so darn good that three independent guys can shoot bad guys. But 
it's so hard because throughout the entire movie you're going, oh no, maybe the pirates don't get on board. Oh wait, yeah they do because you know why? Because the Navy SEALs shoot the bad guys in the face at the end. Because I know this story, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, maybe he won't get in the boat with the bad Oh, no, he does get in the boat with the bad guys. It's oh, he's going to swim away. Maybe he's... Sw- no, he's not going to swim away because he gets rescued by the Navy guys at the end. Because I already know that. Yeah, so... I think Tom Hanks, though, does a great job playing this part. I, I think he, he plays it well. He hasn't it, had a lot of big, you know, wow roles lately. He's been panned, or his movies have been panned. Maybe not him, but the movies have been, been panned lately, and this movie's gotten great reviews. It's, it's great reviews. I think what you'll see, this is what I observed uh, if you watch the movie. He goes from being a, a, a good actor to all of a sudden, it's, like, it's almost like the, the director said, okay, now is the time when you have to get really emotional because it's the end of the movie. And all of a sudden he's like, ah, don't kill me. You know, but of course you're going, well, I know he doesn't die. It looks scary. But he doesn't die. And the reason I know that is because the Navy steal snipers, shoot the guys in the face at the end. And then the very end of the movie, you know, he gets rescued and so on and so forth. But So what's different than this than like a Zero Dark Thirty? I mean, because we know how that ends too, but that felt suspenseful. And I was on pins well, there and needles. Were a lot, there, but see, there are a lot of parts of that story that you didn't know. You knew good guys get bad guy, but you didn't know the story in between. And Zero Dark Thirty was uh, the culmination of eight years of this woman's work trying to track down this person. So that was the story of how did she work so hard and how many roadblocks does she... This is a, a, a movie about an event that half spanned, what, three days? All in one place. On a boat or inside of a boat. Eh. Yeah, I give like... it a sideways thumb. Hmm. I was really hoping that it was going to be awesome because it got, you know, like a zillion... Percent yes. on Rotten Tomatoes. Yes, but uh, cinematography-wise, it's kind of boring. There's no change of scenery. Oh, people are saying, "Oh, Tom Hanks did a great job." It's almost like he was playing. He was Tom Hanks, and then all of a sudden, he, it's, it's the last ten minutes. They went, "Oh, get really emotional now because you're about to die." Oh, and then he starts crying the whole time. He's calm and he is rationalizing, reasoning with the bad guys and all that sort of stuff, and doing what you'd expect a well-seasoned adult would do when he's facing these children basically is what it was and it just it felt artificial and there was there was an inability in a complete inability to raise suspense because the story was man gets on boat man gets captured by pirates man gets rescued by the u.s navy Ta-da. yeah two and a half hours later so sideways thumb that's a long yeah. movie it's two hours and some yeah, change for three hours and stuff as an aside i was at the port of long beach a uh, few weeks not before this movie, but a few weeks before, another pirate incident happened with a boat called Cirrus. And we took one of those harbor cruises that you take out, you know, but they throw a bunch of people out there and, you know, they right. get the narrator guy. And uh, anyway, we do those. They're called booze cruises. Yes. This was booze cruise minus booze. Oh, oh swell. Sounds awesome. Plus family. Uh, so minus fun equals yes right. vacation. Got it. Uh, so they took us out, and the the Sirius maybe a week, week and a half before that was boarded by Somali pirates, was there was actually. <laughs> so we had seen it. So when they said the the, the you know the the big ship Sirius, yep, there I was. I saw it. Huh. All right, on my end, I saw another hit movie that's gotten a lot of. Great reviews, and the one I saw, G, was called Gravity. Explore's been hit. Explore, do you read? Explore, 
So Gravity is this film where from 10 minutes into the film, you know that they are completely screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so far. I love that idea. Yeah, and what, what's annoying about this movie afterwards, not about seeing the movie, but afterwards, supposedly some astrophysicists have come out saying, oh, that could never happen. But you know what? If you can't suspend disbelief, for just yes. 15 seconds because it's a movie and this one isn't based on somebody asked me the other day i think it was a woman cutting my hair is that based on real events no no oh how could how, i don't know anything about gravity but but how is it any, profoundly different from the concept of apollo 13 it's man lost in space the only thing that it has in common with that is that they're screwed in space yeah and what's great about yeah, this no. movie is that i had heard ahead of time Everybody raving about it. That's all I heard was that all the critics were raving about it, and it was coming to theaters. And Cheryl kept asking me, what's the movie about? I'm like, well, I think they're in space and they're screwed. Oh, gee, for me to tell you anything else about this movie would be a complete crime. They're in space. They're screwed. I'll tell you this. I hate 3D. I think 3D is a fad. It's got to go away. But I also heard ahead of time, got to see this movie in 3D. You know what I'll tell you? You got to see this movie in 3D. Uh, the, the, the 3D effects in this movie made it well worth the extra expense to see. Uh, my son actually saw it in IMAX 3D, and I think because of, you know, in space and these beautiful views of the Earth, the, right. I, the IMAX experience would have been even better. So if you can see this in IMAX 3D, go see it. This movie's about the visuals, the cinematography, the pacing. There's one piece of the movie I really didn't like. They go on and on about Sandra Bullock's daughter and about her relationship, and they're trying to build some empathy into the movie. And it just, to me, felt like a little, like they were spraying a little Velveeta in there. Ugh, contrived. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that part. That part, I don't know that I needed it to be as heavy as, as it was. But I'll tell you what, this movie's 90 minutes. Ten minutes into the movie, I go to the front of my seat. Didn't leave it till 30 seconds before the credits rolled. Um, this is, in my opinion, the first movie I saw this year that I will say Oscar. Uh, not, not Oscar winner, but Oscar. I know you felt that way about the Butler. Didn't you feel that way about the Butler? I did not. No, you did not feel that way. Somebody else. I, I, I feel what? that way about um, Mud, but it's that movie is too old to like get any play. And uh, what was the other one? I, in Prisoners. Yeah. But so, Prisoners won't win either because it's scary. That's right. Prisoners won't win it. The movie I thought might be there, the two that I really like, Fruitvale Station mm -hmm. and the... I always forget the name of this movie, The Incredible Wild Now or The Amazing Now or The, the Spectacular Now, it's called. Uh, those movies are both too small. I mean, yeah. har hardly anybody saw those. So those were the best movies I'd seen before this one this year. And 
and uh, those aren't going to do it. This movie will clearly be, will easily be one of the Oscar nominees. Oscar nominee for best movie or for like cinematography or something like that. Cause I could, is it a good movie or is it yes. a good Oscar movie? It's a good, it's a good movie. It is okay. a good movie. It will be in the top movies for the Oscar. Uh, you know, uh, Sandra Bullock is his best actress. I don't know. George Clooney is best actor. I don't know. This movie's so much about the situation, and they they play characters that, frankly, I think almost anybody could play. This is more about the director and the story than it was about who played those roles. Okay. And certainly Clooney does. You know, I, I mean, when you got veterans like uh, Bullock and Clooney, they can bring it. You know, but it but but it right. wasn't like uh, what was the, the movie? Uh, was it called The Heat? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the funny yeah. movie that we reviewed at the beginning of the summer. You know, there Sandra Bullock did a hell of a job. And I recognize that she did a great job in that movie. In this movie, I think you could have stuck any veteran actor in there, and your job is not to screw it up. Just now, do you think that uh, they should have charged more because of the cost of filming in space? Or (laughs) I did wonder sometimes how they got her to look like she's in space, and because she was in space, right? And and weightless. Not that I know. Did they? What are you talking about? Well, the movie's about being in space, right? I mean, you yes. can't replicate that on Earth, so oh. I can only presume that they went yeah, into can. outer space and filmed it. No, <laughs> right? No, they have that. They have they have a few ways you can film it, but, but in space is what you're saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in a, One way is in space; the other way is also in space. In the, the the space between your ears, dude. I wonder, like, how hard it was to carry a camera while floating in space. <laughs> Do you have to practice? Oh, how do you practice? Oh, they do it underwater. That's that, right. From it, I saw Apollo 13. They practice underwater, upside down in the time capsule thing, or whatever the hell that's called. Not a time capsule, I guess. That would be a different movie. And then, and then, and then in outer space. So I can't wait for the theme music to come up. <laughs> we'll see you next week. We'll have a bunch of uh, FinCon interviews next week. OG. Sweet. I'm gonna do nothing except watch lots of movies. Fantastic. Bring me popcorn. Chop, chop. Later on. This show is the property of the Free Financial Advisor, LLC. Copyright 2013. Make It Sense Babe appears courtesy of MakingSenseBabe.com and if I play my cards right, she'll also appear at dinner with me on Saturday night. It appears I've fallen and I can't get up. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members. 
and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.